Radio. Salvation History, A Love Story, Part 2. A talk by Dr. Adam Cooper at the Immaculata Mission School 2015. Held at the Sacred Heart Retreat Centre in Croydon, Melbourne. I've got you up to about 12 o'clock, which is only about 50 minutes, but I want to cover a fair bit of ground in that time and in a lot more detail perhaps than last night. Last night was an attempt to paint sort of broad brushstroke, um, broad brushstroke picture uh, and, and uh, get a, give a, a sort of a feel for what this history of salvation theme means. But I want to go into more detail in some ways to plot the main stages of the history of salvation, the main stages of God's interventions in human history in order to rescue and restore fallen, broken humanity in order to bring it to its proper God-ordained completion. To do that, we probably need to go back to the story of creation. There's always a temptation when we go back to the story of creation to think of creation as sort of some dim, distant event in the past, kind of like in a galaxy far, far away. To think of it very abstractly as a kind of uh, some wonderful, happy story or sad story about Adam and Eve and the garden and the snake and God and the fig leaves and so on and so on. But, but when we talk about creation in Christian teaching, we must first think about, about what it means for me here and now. Creation is something that God is doing now. It's not an event that God did once upon a time. It is that, but it's much more than that. It's, it's the structure of the way things are now. It, it refers to an absolute dependence that we have upon God for our very existence and for the very practical things that are in our lives. You just think, you, many of you might have had toast for breakfast this morning. And where did that toast come from? How many people were involved in bringing that little piece of bread to you? How many vocations? How many callings? How many jobs? How many networks and communities were involved in bringing you that little piece of bread in answer to your prayer, give us this day our daily bread? You think of the supermarket people. You think of the checkout chick. You think of the people who drove the truck. You think of the people who ground the grain at the flour mills. You think of the truck drivers who brought the grain to the flour mills from the farms where it was harvested. And it's still being harvested right now. If you drive past the paddocks out my way, you'll see the harvest is still in operation. And the farmers who planted that seed into ground that needed to be fertile and which needed rain to fall from the sky to water it. All of that is involved in bringing you your morning toast. This is creation at work. This is God's creative activity at work, sustaining you and providing for you day after day with all your physical needs, food, clothing, home, family, work, study, community, vocation, a peaceful and ordered community, these are all gifts from God. These are his provisions, his way of sustaining human life and human community, sustaining you. And when you think of creation, don't think first of all of some dim, distant story. Think first of all about the way you are utterly dependent upon God for your existence. Everything about you depends on God's sustenance. If he took it away, for one moment, if he took away his power, you would just fall into nothingness. You have been brought out of nothing by God, and you are sustained in being in your existence by him as well. But having said that, we do need to go back as well, because the, the kind of sin-sick situation of the world the, the situation in which we know things aren't right. People do things which are senseless and evil, and we don't know why. It's not a new problem. It's not a problem since 9-11 or something. It's an old problem. And it's been the condition of the world since day one. But what is this day one? And where do we go back to? 
And if you study evolutionary biology, the, the origins of human life are somewhat shadowy. But it seems clear that, that humanity sort of springs up in history as a kind of remarkable event, as a remarkable occurrence. Something that utterly new enters into the, the field of life. And it's intelligence, and it's spirit, and it's language, and it's marriage. All of those rolled into one, emerge suddenly with human existence. And the scriptures tell the story of this remarkable emergence of human life into the world, into the arena of the whole universe, in the form of a story of a man and a woman created by God. We call them Adam and Eve. Adam means man from the ground, man from the earth. Eve means mother of the living. And this first man and this first woman represent in some ways all of us. They are a real pair. They are a real couple. And yet they are you and me as well. In the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe stories by C.S. Lewis, we are the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. And this, this reiterates a connection that we have with them. They are not alien beings. They don't belong to a different species. They are one flesh and blood with you and me. But that also means that we share in the liability that they brought into the world by their failings, by their refusal to trust God and His good provision. They aspired to be like God, but they wanted to be like God in their own way. God aspires for us all to be like Him, to reflect His goodness, to image His love. This is what God wants for us. He has predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus, who is the radiance of God's glory and true humanity all at once. And this is God's plan for all of us. But God wants to bring us to this plan, and to this fulfillment in His way. And Adam and Eve wanted to get it in their own way. They wanted to appropriate it to themselves. And when they saw the fruit of this tree, this mysterious tree that is in the middle of the Garden of Eden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they see how attractive its fruit is, and they see how it promises them this likeness to God, this fulfillment that they all long for, and freedom, and joy, and wisdom, and knowledge, when they see this fruit, they want to appropriate it for themselves. But in doing so, they must let go of trust in God. They must let go of the way God wants to draw them on into communion with Himself. A communion based on mutual trust. A communion based on receiving from God all His generous and superabundant gifts with a thankful heart, not envying others nor envying God, but open hands. Thank you, God, for all that you've given me. I receive my life from you. There's no other place I'd rather be than here in your love. That is the way God wants to build his communion with this Adam and Eve and through them with all human beings. But it was a fateful moment when the woman took the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, seduced momentarily by this serpent figure, this devilish snake who casts the seed of doubt into her mind concerning the word of God, who throws a dark shadow over the goodness of God. And she takes the fruit for herself. She gives some to the man who is with her. And suddenly their eyes are opened. 
And what do they see? Do they see the radiance of God's glory as they were promised by the serpent? Do they see the truth of things according to God's vision? Suddenly, no. All they see is their own nakedness, their own emptiness, as it were, their own vulnerability without God. And they try and hide it away. They try and run away. They try and escape the gaze of their good God because now they have a bad conscience. Now they're filled with a sense of shame. And their relationship with God is broken. They've betrayed Him. They've betrayed His trust. And in that break with their relationship with God, there becomes also a break in their relationship with one another. The fall occurs in the form of a marriage breakdown. When the man now blames the woman, she's the one who gave me the fruit. The one you gave me, God. And she, in turn, is estranged from her husband. She desires him and yet he rules and lords it over her. This is the fruit of their broken trust with God. And this is the story not just of this Adam and Eve, this is our story. Because it's a story that shows up again and again and again and again through human history. And we've experienced it. We've experienced this estrangement between men and women, this competitiveness, this lack of trust, and rightly so because we constantly betray trust, fail trust, prove ourselves untrustworthy. We've experienced the shame of a bad conscience and a darkened heart when we want to hide away all our misdeeds and not be shown up for the phonies that we really are. We've all experienced this detachment from God, this failure to trust Him, this refusal to let God be God and receive all our lives from Him as a gift in thanksgiving. And instead, we want to control our lives ourselves. Say, yes, God, but... I want to keep a handle on things. I want to do it my way. I say yes to you, but it's a kind of partial yes. I let you into my life, but not in all of my life. There's a lot of places in my heart, a lot of darkness in my life, and I really don't want you to go there. Friends, that's why it's usually pretty uncomfortable going to confession. Who, who enjoys going to confession? Thanks, thanks to God, there's some holy people among us here. I enjoy coming out of confession. Yeah. I rejoice coming out of confession. I'm a new man. I'm free. You're going into confession. It's like going to the dentist. <laughs> it's worse. Why is it that Confession is so daunting because we're, we're laying open our lives before God and His light. And we're ashamed of what our lives contain, what they reveal. This self-examination reveals so many problems. Many of them we're blind to. Thank God that the Lord teaches us gently, reveals our issues to us gradually. If we saw them all at once, we'd probably be overwhelmed with despair. If we did not fix our hope on the merciful and pardoning forgiveness of our Heavenly Father. The story of creation is a story of a, a gracious and superabundantly giving God who creates humanity in His own image to reflect His glory in the world. In the ancient world, when the pagan people would build a temple, 
They would deck it all out. They would order all the furnishings. And then the last thing they would put in the temple would be the idol, the idol of the god. You know, if it was a Canaanite god like Baal or one of those gods. And they would put the idol there. And the idol would be to represent the god in the temple. To reflect the face of the god, to be the presence of god in that temple. Biblical scholars say that the opening chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, are written with that image in mind that the world is a temple. The whole of creation is a temple created by the true God, an arena for His praise and glory. And what's the last thing God creates in this grand arena of creation? What's the climax of His works of creation? Us, man, human beings, male and female, in his image. And he sets them up in creation to do what? To reflect his glory, to manifest his presence, to be, if you like, little God in the world. Not gods to be worshipped, but God's representatives, God's presence, God's likeness, God's face in the world. And who is this God? It's the the God who is a communion of love. And so it's right that he creates a pair, a couple, capable of a communion that issues forth in offspring, so that their communion of love reflects and embodies the Trinitarian communion of love. He creates the world in an ordered way with human beings and their communion as the pinnacle, the very icing on the cake of creation. And all of this seems to come tumbling down with this sin of Adam and Eve. So much so that in Genesis chapter 6, God himself seems to regret the way things have turned out. It's a rather curious passage. It's just before the story of Noah and the ark and the flood. These are the words. Genesis 6 verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth And his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air. For I am grieved that I have made them. And then the verse, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Here in miniature is a kind of example of what unfolds again and again through the story of human history. Human failure, human evil escalates to such a degree that God is bound to intervene, bound to put a a boundary around human evil. And he does so with, if you like, pain in his heart, so to speak. Grieved that his good plan, his good designs should be so undermined and so threatened. When Adam and Eve sinned, God intervened by putting them outside of the Garden of Eden, outside the realm of immortality, lest they should take from the tree of life and so perpetuate evil and sin forever. Have you ever imagined what an evil person's life would be like if they lived forever? Imagine a Stalin or a Hitler if they were immortal. No end. No end to the evil they could do. And so this boundary of death, this boundary of being excluded from the Garden of Eden is an intervention. It's the imposition, yes, of a punishment, mortality. They will die. But it's also on God's part 
a provision to protect creation from perpetual evil. And yet in doing so, God does not simply abandon Adam and Eve to death and mortality. He sees their pitiful attempt to cover their nakedness, these fig leaves sewn together. I don't know if you've got a fig tree. I've got a fig tree in my garden. I certainly wouldn't like to wear a fig, fig leaf skirt and get a rash just when I touch my arm from one of those things. He sees their pitiful attempt to cover their nakedness. What does he do? He provides the skins of animals to cover their nakedness. Where does God get skins of animals? He has to slay or kill an animal. Blood must be shed. Blood must be shed for the shame and the nakedness of this human couple to be covered over. To be relieved of their shame and their nakedness and their attempt to provide their own covering. And so the first blood is shed in the history of the world. Shed for the sake of us human beings. Shed to cover our shame. Shed to provide for our mortal and pitiful condition. And God guards the way back to the tree of life with a flaming sword and an angelic guard until the time comes when he will open the way again to that tree of life at the right time. God's interventions in human history are in many respects mysterious and hidden from us. But the ones which we know about, which have been given through divine revelation, tell again and again of a God who makes promises and keeps them. We sang this morning, remember your people, remember your children, remember your promises. The history of salvation is a history of remembered promises, promises that God himself has made. And when Christ was born into the world, the people of his time saw it as God remembering his promises, the fulfillment of a promise that God had made long ago. And one of the most important promises, one of the most prominent promises God made in the history of salvation was to a man named Abraham. He's a well-known figure in three great religions of the world, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. God, in his own mysterious wisdom, out of his own sovereign freedom, selected this man and chose him to be and to become the father of a savior, eventually, the ancestor for a savior. Why did God choose Abraham? Who was Abraham? Well, in many respects, he was a nobody. One of the scripture passages speaks of him as a wandering Aramean. And he lived way out in the wastes, the desert wastes of Mesopotamia, ancient Mesopotamia, modern day Iran and Iraq. I've traveled in Iraq. I was there a few years ago. And you know that for four or five months of the year, the temperatures are in the mid to high 40s. And it's just a kind of rocky desert for hundreds of kilometers in any direction. It's a wild, windswept, God-forsaken landscape, at least, to look at. There's some wonderful people there, don't get me wrong. There are Christian communities have been there for centuries, and other communities have been there even longer. But the geography of the place is daunting. It's an empty kind of place. There are some rivers here and there. But about 2000 BC, God chose this Obscure tribal chief, a wandering nomad, not very powerful, not very accomplished. He wasn't exactly poor, but he kind of was on the way out 
He was a figure who was going nowhere. Why? Because he and his wife were childless. To be childless in the ancient world is virtually to be cursed, considered cursed, at least by the community around you. If a woman can't have children, if a wife can't bear children for her husband in those times, well, that was for her the greatest cross to bear. It was like she carried death in her womb, death in her body. And she bore the stigma of it in the community. And so did her husband. And he was an old man and his wife was an old woman. And they had no prospects of children, no hope for a future. But you know, that's just the sort of person God typically might choose. Just the sort of person God might look for. Because that's the way God operates. He uses the weak to minister to the strong. He chooses a nobody in order to reach out and become somebody. This is God's way of free and sovereign election. He's unpredictable. He chooses Abraham not because of anything, but simply, if you like, as a surprise. And what did God say to Abraham? This is the covenant. This is the promise. This is the promise of promises in the Old Testament to which the people of Christ's day continually look back. What was the promise? Genesis 12, 1-3. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, leave your people and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all nations on earth will be blessed through you. What a promise. What a grandiose promise. All nations on the earth will be blessed, Abraham, through you. What do you do with a promise like that? What do you do with a confrontation like that? God somehow speaks to you and He speaks to you a promise of mammoth proportions. Abraham simply trusted. He trusted God's promise. He believed that what God promised would come about. He believed that God does not break His promises. And he left his father and his father's household. And he went to this country that God was going to show him, yet he knew not where it was. It was an unconditional promise. There were no strings attached. And it was received and accepted in faith. It's the only way to respond to a solemn promise from someone who is trustworthy. You accept it in trust. You believe them. And you wait for them patiently to fulfill the promise. And this promise of God to Abraham becomes, if you like, the clue to the whole of the unfolding of salvation history, particularly with the people of Israel. Abraham eventually did bear a son, Isaac. Isaac bore a son, Jacob. And this God who spoke to Abraham becomes known in history then as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who keeps his promises the God who remembers His promise to Abraham. And everything that happens to the people of Israel, the, the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from this moment on, is an unfolding of God keeping His promise to Abraham. When they get enslaved in Egypt and are made servants of Pharaoh, slaves of the Pharaohs down there, to do all his hard yakka for him, build his great pyramids, set up his super empire with this slave people working for pittance. When God steps in and intervenes through Moses down in Egypt, 
It's because he remembers the promise he made to Abraham. I remember my promise made to Abraham that I would bless all nations through you and your offspring. I remember my promise made to Abraham that through you there would come one who will become the savior of the world. Through Abraham, God had promised a great future for the world, blessing for the world. And so God defends his people. God comes to the rescue of his people. Why? Because they're so good and righteous? Because they're a virtuous people? Far from it. They're a grumbling people. They're a rebellious people. They're an unbelieving people. They're a wayward people. Again and again, God rescues His people. He brings them out of Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness to lead them to Mount Sinai to worship Him. And no sooner are they rescued from this dreadful slavery of Egypt and they start complaining, complaining about the food they eat. They remember the beautiful garlics and onions and stuff they had in Egypt. Instead, they're eating this weird manna stuff in the desert. They complain about the lack of water. They complain about their leader, Moses. They complain that they're not as strong and powerful as other nations. And God doesn't abandon them. He goes with them. A pillar of fire by night a pillar of cloud by day, leading them through their wilderness sojourns. This rebellious and wayward people, constantly present with them, defending them from evil, providing for their daily needs, and listening, above all, to the intercessions of his servant Moses, who prays for the people and says, God, forgive them. God, forgive this wayward people. Don't abandon us as we deserve. Fulfill your promise to Abraham and lead us to the promised land. This is the story of salvation. The story of God's interactions with a rebellious people. And this rebellious people are a kind of microcosm of all peoples on earth. What happens with Israel is a kind of forerunner of what happens more widely with the nations. As gradually their borders expand as other peoples interact with them and they with other peoples. And they become, if you like, more international, more global. And wherever they go, they proclaim the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who keeps his promises, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, who forgives sins and wickedness. This is the God they proclaim again and again. And even when they fall into, if you like, institutionalized evil, through their kings, through their systems, through their politics, God sends prophets, holy men and women inspired by the Holy Spirit to proclaim the word of God, to change the shape of history again, to bring, yes, God's judgment upon them for their sin but only in order to turn their hearts back to him again, to lead them to repentance so that they may know once again that communion of God is sweet and that this God wants finally for them to love and own him as a wife loves and owns her husband. Like to, if you like, fast forward through Israel's history and come to a point where, in the creed, we speak of the entry into the world of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. You notice in the creed that there is very little said, in fact, nothing said really about what happens between the creation of the world and the entry of the Savior for us and for our salvation. There's the confession of God, the Creator, God the Father, the Creator, Creator of heaven and earth. And then the confession of Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who, in the Nicene Creed, for us and for our salvation, came down from heaven, was incarnate, made a human being. Why this gap? 
Why is there no mention of this long and involved history? Well, quite probably because many of the early Christians among whom this creed was formed already kind of knew that history so well. For us, in our modern times, we're kind of strangers to it. It seems like somebody else's history. This history of Israel, this history of Abraham, this history of the prophets. But you know, it's important for us to get a handle on it because the identity of Jesus is bound up with that history. Jesus is not just a kind of cosmic sort of hero who enters into the world from nowhere. He is a fully-fledged human being. He's a child of an ancestry, an ancestry that leads back to Abraham. And this ancestry is vital because when we are brought into relationship with Christ, we are drawn into this ancestry we are drawn into this promise that God made to Abraham. I'll come to that in a minute, just when we get to the work of the Holy Spirit. Right now, I'd like to just speak about Jesus a bit more, his person and his work. You'll notice that in the creed, almost nothing is said about Jesus' teaching. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven by the Holy Spirit, he was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. That's the story of Christ. The story of salvation in Christ in the world. But what about Jesus' teaching? What about Jesus' precepts? What about his parables? His parables about the kingdom of God. What about the Beatitudes? What about the Sermon on the Mount? What about his critique of the religiously self-righteous? Where's all that in the creed? Where's all that in the story of our salvation? It's important to note that it's, if you like, secondary in the story of salvation, all of that. What is most central in the story of our salvation are the acts of Christ, and particularly the acts of Christ in his crucifixion, his death, and his resurrection. It's these actions of Christ which have redemptive and saving power and which give his teaching life-giving power. I'm not saying that we can separate Jesus' teaching off from his work and so as though we could say yes to Jesus but no to his teaching. To say yes to Jesus, to say yes to his salvation is a package deal. It's to say yes to his words and his teaching too and there we cannot afford to be selective either and choose the bits of teaching of Jesus that we like and just leave aside the others that we find a bit offensive or out of touch. No, yes to Christ is a complete yes. But it's noteworthy that in the way Christianity has formed the story of the faith, when it's come to concentrate on what is most essential to the world's salvation, the teaching of Jesus doesn't feature anywhere near as prominently as his actions. His teaching maps out for us a path to fulfillment, the way of true love. It exposes self-righteousness, hypocrisy. It leads us to the goal that Christ wants to lead us to. But Jesus didn't come to the world as a moral teacher. He didn't come as just another kind of Moses to give a new set of Ten Commandments, only better ones. He came into the world as its saviour, as Moses or Abraham or David could never do. He came into the world as saviour. That's what his name Jesus means. They will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. 
Traditionally, the church identifies that from which Christ has saved us in three terms, sin, death, and the devil, or the power of the devil. We must never forget that we've been saved for a goal, but we've also been saved from these powers. Christianity is not just about escaping sin or eternal damnation, about avoiding hell, but it's about embracing the fullness of life for which we've been created. But let us also remember that this fullness of life is only possible because of what Jesus has done in his death by setting us free from the dark and crippling and enslaving spiritual powers in the world over which we have no strength by ourselves to conquer. Without Christ, without his saving intervention in the world and in our lives, we remain powerless to help or save ourselves. And yet the prophets already anticipated this remarkable sequence of events and the character of Jesus' life as a sacrifice for sin. There's a passage we heard briefly from, in fact, this morning in our rosary meditations. It was referred to just as a lamb goes to the slaughter without opening its mouth. So our Lord faced his persecutors and those who scourged him. Listen now to the fuller passage from Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 53. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. There was nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. He was like one from whom people hide their faces. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God smitten by God and afflicted. And yet, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people... He was stricken. These words spoken hundreds of years before Christ map out, as it were, the truth of the events of his death on the cross at Calvary, which is a mystery because there is the very undoing of human sin. From that cross, Christ called out, My God. My God, why have you forsaken me? He's experiencing there the total God-forsakenness of the human condition without God. The human condition in rebellion towards God. Christ enters most fully into that damnation. Enters most fully into that hell of separation from God. And he bears it as the human being for all human beings. He bears it as the man of sorrows. He bears it as one who knows God-forsakenness from the inside out. And this cross event is not just a kind of model for us to copy. It's not just there in front of us as a kind of model for imitation. Jesus did this, so you ought to as well. Of course, that's part of being a Christian. We want to imitate our Lord. We want to imitate his self-giving. We want to imitate his self-emptying love, a love that goes to the very end and beyond. Friends, if that cross of Christ is just a model for us to copy, 
then there's no salvation in it for us. If that cross of Christ is just a kind of example, a kind of high bar, here it is, jump. Get over the bar like he did. If that's all it is, then we remain lost in our sin. Lost in death. Because none of us has the wherewithal, the power to redeem ourselves. Over against such theories stands a more traditional Christian viewpoint, which we might call redemptive realism. That what happens on the cross changes things, is is an event that transforms history, that is, if you like, the center of history for us. I need a bit more space on this. There we go. Redemptive realism speaks of this cross as a performative event, God's action in the world. You know, when God speaks, things happen. So when someone who is God himself in the flesh acts in this way, things happen. When the God who is the creator of the world suffers and dies our sin, our death, then history is changed. A key is unlocked. A magic older than creation begins to unfold. And life becomes available through this cross through the blood of the one who hangs on this cross. And this is a realism that we celebrate every day, every week in our liturgy. We speak of Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not just the Lamb of God who gives us an example to follow, but the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Listen to other prayers that we have in our Eucharistic prayers. At Easter time, we hear these words. For he is the true lamb who has taken away the sins of the world. By dying, he has destroyed our death. And by rising, he has restored our life. Or again, for his death is our ransom from death, our being brought back out of death. And his rising is the life of all who will rise. Or another one, let me give... One more. For through his paschal mystery, the word given to the events of his suffering and death, through his paschal mystery, he accomplished the marvelous deed by which he has freed us from the yoke of sin and death. By the passion of the cross, he freed us from unending death. And by rising from the dead, he gave us life eternal. we try and sort of work out the mechanism by which Christ's death and resurrection are salvation for us all, I think we'll lead ourselves into a blind alley. I think we'll get stumped. And over the centuries, many scholars have tried to kind of work out with precision, almost mathematically, the mechanism by which Christ's passion, death and resurrection mean life and salvation for us, spell life and salvation for the whole world. But I think it's probably better to think of it this way. This is the way St. Paul often speaks in the New Testament when proclaiming the wonderful news of Christ's death and resurrection. What happens in Christ becomes available to us not by bringing something back from then into the here and now. But by our being implanted, so to speak, into Christ's death and resurrection. When we are baptized, we are united to Christ in his death. And as he dies, we die. We don't die a physical death, but we die spiritually to sin. Sin is put to death in us. Immortality is begun in us. A seed is planted in us that begins to flower and grow to fulfillment, to eternal life. And so it's more about our being inserted into the story, our being brought into Christ's death and resurrection. So often we ask the question, 
What does all that mean for me now? How do I apply it to me now? But we probably need to reconfigure that question and say, how do I get into that story? How do I become part of this event of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, dying for me, dying for the world's salvation, taking away our sins and raising us to new life? I've only got a short time left, so I want to just cover a couple more points that present a kind of curiosity, I suppose, to many who are not Catholics, which many Catholics perhaps take for granted, but are important for us to think through again in this quest for understanding the history of salvation. The first point has to do with the role of Mary. The role of the mother of God, the mother of our Savior, Jesus Christ. From very early times in the church's life, it was recognized that there's a kind of parallel between Adam, the original Adam, and Jesus Christ, and between Eve, the original mother of the living, and Mary. A kind of parallel between Adam and Eve and Jesus and Mary. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, speaks constantly of a parallelism between Adam and Christ. Through Adam, death entered into the world. Through Christ, life has sprung up in the world. Through Adam, condemnation came to all people. Through Christ, righteousness and grace and forgiveness has come to all people. So there's a kind of reversal of what entered into the world through Adam in Christ. Something similar at work with Mary in her parallel to Eve. Through Eve, if you like, disobedience enters into the world. She disobeyed the command of God not to eat of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Through her disobedience, Sin and disobedience enters into the world, enters into history. But what do we have with Mary? We have an act of obedience. In response to the announcement of the angel of the Lord, she says, let it be done to me according to your word. The word of God for her is first and foremost. She wants it to be done. She consents for it to be done in her life in her body. And so the tide of history is turned. And this is something I think that many Protestants find hard to grasp, but actually makes sense when you think about it. They often ask, what's the difference between Mary and us? How come you Catholics call her kind of co-redeemer, co-redemptrix? How can you give her such honors? Isn't she just another human being? Wouldn't that be to make more of her than she is and to risk idolizing her. Well, yes, there's always a risk in idolizing any creature, and there's a risk in idolizing Mary, too. She is not God. But her yes to God is something different from your and my yes to God. Your yes to God, my yes to God, accomplish salvation in our lives and may even spill over to accomplish salvation in other people's lives as we pray for them, as we bear witness to them in the world, as we encounter them, and as we testify to Christ and bring them the gospel so that they too say yes to God. But Mary's yes to God, Mary's yes to God changed the whole world, opened the way for salvation for all people, not just her spouse, Joseph, not just her cousins and family members, but opened the way of salvation for all. Because her yes enabled the Savior of the world to be conceived and born and enter into the world. Her yes brings God into the world in a completely unique way, in a way for all people. And so the role of Mary in the story of salvation is absolutely crucial. But she said no 
to the angel then, history would be different. Everything turns on a thread in the story of salvation. No doubt God would have found some other way. He wouldn't have given up on the world. But the shape that it has taken depends upon Mary's yes to God, her consent, her words, let it be done to me according to your word. I'd like to say also something about the church and its role in the history of salvation. We know the event of Pentecost. We celebrate it in the church the day when God poured out his Holy Spirit in answer to a promise, in fulfillment of a promise, upon the gathered disciples, Mary and the gathered disciples in Jerusalem. And from that point, the church was filled with confidence, filled with boldness to proclaim and witness to the truth of Christ, to tell the gospel around the world, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to all the ends of the earth, to take the good news of Christ out and beyond. We know that story. But the history of salvation depends crucially upon the church being, if you like, the extension of God's incarnate presence in the world in Christ. This is why the New Testament speaks of the church as the body of Christ. And the saints speak of us being Christ's hands and his feet. The world's salvation has been accomplished. All that is needed for the world's salvation has been accomplished in Christ, in his death and his glorious resurrection. But friends, this salvation must be carried across time and across space. Paul, in his letter to, sec to the Corinthians, the second letter to the Corinthians, distinguishes between the reconciliation which God has achieved through Christ. In Christ, God has reconciled the sinful world to himself. He distinguishes between that on the one hand and the ministry of reconciliation. The serving and playing out of that reconciliation at the one-to-one -one interpersonal level. Bringing that reconciliation to others by the way we relate to them, by the forgiveness we pronounce, by the love that we enact, by the faithfulness and the discipleship that we fulfill in our own lives. This is the ministry of reconciliation. And so the church is the minister, the servant of reconciliation, divine reconciliation in the world. This is absolutely crucial because it means that salvation cannot be brought to the world except by a reconciliation that ultimately is based on forgiveness of sins. Salvation is brought through forgiveness of sins. And that forgiveness must happen in your home. And that forgiveness must happen in your friendships. And that forgiveness must happen in your marriage. And that forgiveness must happen in your workplace. And that forgiveness must take place in our churches. And how can you forgive unless you yourself have been forgiven? The story of salvation for us, for the church, for the body of Christ, is a story of unfolding forgiveness of sins. Because this is the way God transforms hearts, interiors, not just exteriors. You can force a person outwardly to change their behavior through threats, through promise of rewards. But you don't reach people's hearts that way. You only reach people's hearts through love. Love that is enacted when love, like Hosea, is being spurned. Love that is faithful. Love that is Christ-like. Love that is self-emptying. This is the forgiving love that our world needs. This is why the Eucharist is, if you like, the great sacrament of salvation. Here is Christ's body. Here is Christ's blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins.
Here the fountain of forgiveness flows perpetually, universally, around the world for all. This is where, if you like, that original marriage that God planned is most fully, most tangibly tasted in our own world, in our own history. Here, if you like, the future marriage of Christ and the church is already celebrated on earth. The Eucharist is a foretaste of the marriage feast to come. It's an anticipation of the communion that we can have with God by the forgiveness of our sins, by a reconciliation which He achieves by His mercy. This is why the Eucharist is a wonderful sacrament of salvation. That's why it's a kind of marriage feast on earth, a heavenly marriage feast on earth. Friends, salvation history is a love story. It's a story of God and His dealings with human beings as a series of kind of marriage proposals. After all these proposals through history, through the time of Israel, to which His people said no, or only a half-hearted yes, finally, in the person of Mary of Nazareth, humanity said yes. Yes to God's marriage proposal. And then salvation was born. Salvation was born in the flesh for all. God has proposed to the world. God has proposed to you. Mary said yes. Will you also say yes with her? That was Dr. Adam Cooper with Salvation History, a love story, part two. For more from the Immaculata Mission School, visit cradio.org.au.